My name is David Ades, and I'm a poet based in Sydney. And I run in a, a host in association with West Words, which is uh, in Parramatta in, uh, in Sydney's West, a monthly poetry reading series called Poets Corner, which we now are producing as a podcast. West Words is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of West Words public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see a sharing and a closeness of spirit. So each month I invite a poet to read poems and talk about them for an hour or so around a theme of the poet's choice. Our guest poet today, whom I'll introduce in a moment, is Melinda Smith, who will read poems and talk on the theme of transmute, dreams, nightmares, and metamorphoses. Uh, before I start, I generally do what we call here an, an acknowledgement of country. I'm recording this from my home in Beecroft in Sydney. Melinda is recording from her home in the Australian Capital Territory. I'd like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging of the Wallamita people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and also of the Nuganawal, Nagambri and Nagarigo peoples, the traditional custodians of the land in the Australian Capital Territory, and to acknowledge also that they are the sovereign owners of their land, which has never been ceded or given up. Melinda Smith is a poet, editor, teacher, arts advocate, and event curator. Her latest book, Manhandled, has just been published by Recent Work Press. She's the author of seven other books, poetry books, including the 2014 Prime Minister's Literary Award winner, Drag Down to Unlock or Place an Emergency Call. She frequently collaborates with artists in other disciplines, including dancers, musicians, and visual artists, and is a former poetry editor of the Canberra Times. She lives in the Australian Capital Territory on the Gunnawal country. Hi, Melinda, and welcome to Poets Corner. Hi there, David. It's, it's wonderful to be here, and thank you very much for all of that wonderful context and, and the acknowledgement of country, which I would like to second. Uh, you've chosen your theme, Transmute, Dreams, Nightmares and Metamorphoses. And when you sent me a selection of your poems um, that included a quote from Ovid, which is obviously a, a good starting point, um, obviously it informs the theme. I, I kind of wondered, did you choose the theme or did the theme choose you? Um, I think the theme chose me in some ways. Um, to give a bit of background, I've, I've been writing a lot in the last few years about quite dark material. Um, you know, I did a book all about uh, suicide and the one before that was informed a lot by postnatal depression and the one after that was informed by kind of gendered violence. I didn't want to do a theme that spoke just to one of those concerns. And when I looked across all the books, I actually realised that all of them had lots of poems in them in which things became other things. And um, sometimes those changes were voluntary, sometimes they were involuntary, sometimes people were choosing them as a, an alternative to another kind of change that they didn't want even more, if you know what I mean, like 
choosing between A and B where A is slightly less worse than B. Um, so, so that's kind of what jumped out at me. So that's why I decided to, um, to choose this theme. And, and I did do a little bit of digging around of it a few years ago. There was an anthology that I was invited to be part of that was um, done by Recent Work Press for the 2000th anniversary of Ovid. Um, and a bunch of poets were invited to write metamorphoses-inspired poems and uh, reminded me how, how very strange and how very wise some of those stories are in Ovid. So, well, um, from reading the poems that you've sent me, there's usually a catalyst for the transformation. I was just wondering if you have any poems that are also informed by, you know, Gregor Samson and Franz Kafka, where you just sort of wake up and you're suddenly other. Um, well, one of the poems I think I'm going to read today is a bit like that, um, where you wake up and you're, you're, uh, you've been transformed into a tree in the forest of suicides in Dante's um, 13th Canto. So there, there is that one. I actually don't know if I've got any other ones where I just wake up as I'm something else, but um, there may well be some. I'm working on another collection about memory loss at the moment and that, that kind of scenario feeds in quite well to memory loss. Yeah. You wake up with no context. Um, so that may well uh, show its head in my, in my new work that I'm working on now. All right. Well, I suppose we should start with a, with a poem. Um, and the first poem you're going to read is Woman's Work, which is, I think is a brilliant way to start this discussion. Okay, so this is from Drag Down to Unlock or Place an Emergency Call. And um, I kind of chose it because it, it thinks about childbirth as not only, you know, the child transforming from fetus into human, having an independent life outside with its own body, but it also, also metamorphoses the mother. Um, and um, there's not a lot, I mean, there is, there is more and more, but when I, when I was thinking about um, the experience of childbirth and what I was going to go through as a new mother, what I wanted to do was just to be able to have the equivalent of the Iliad to pick up. If you were going into battle, you should probably read the Iliad before you go. But if you're going into labor, I wanted like a, a female equivalent, equivalent of that to pick up and I couldn't really find anything. So this poem reaches to, towards that epic space. It doesn't quite get there and it, you know, it's a lot shorter than the Iliad, obviously. Um, but that's kind of where this poem came from. And I wrote it many years after giving birth to my first child as a kind of uh, companion slash guide for a friend who was about to go through the same thing. So this is called Woman's Work. First stage. She rolls in an ocean of aching. Her back creaks a wooden ship in a gale. It is beginning. Today is the last day of her life and the first. She cries out with the toiling of it. The tide sucks her bones apart. A pain wave gathers and breaks and another. Between them she floats in a blind trough without horizon. Breathing and bracing for the next, hearing her mother's words, there will only be so many. Transition. She shudders earthquakes. The land of her childhood buckles and tilts. Her feet 
will learn new terrain. Behind her, behind her closed eyes, looms a huge rock, unmoving. Her mind latches on. Her mother taught her the name of the rock. She speaks it over and over. The rock is in shadow, trees and soil avalanche around it. It stays massively perfectly still. The wind blows the sun backwards into howling dark. It blows down her throat and steals her breath. The black rock stays. She can no longer call its name. The wind dies with the moon's rising. In pale light, the rock stares down, wearing a calm white veil. Second stage. Down at her base, it burns and stings. Bitter herbs, vinegar on an open wound. The swelling splits her, cracks her like an egg. Her mother said, push into the burning. It is the only way. She does not believe she can seek more pain, but the singers start the old chant and she prepares herself. She dares the fire again and again. She is a length of steel. She is becoming a sword. She feels lightning and tears like a temple curtain. Third stage. A new body heaves from her into the light. Exhaustion melts her. The women pass her the child. The singers chant again. Praise her. She has endured the great trial and renewed the life of the world. She has crossed over. She is one of the wise. Feed her a great banquet. Bathe her in sweet water. For she has done the mightiest of things. And it is epic. It is epic, isn't it? Um, and th oh, this poem really struck me because uh, obviously I've not experienced childbirth. Um, I, I witnessed the birth of three children, um, but it never, it never occurred to me that the mother was undergoing a metamorphosis. Um, so, but now that you have given me this poem, I see it in a way that it can't ever be anything other than a metamorphosis. So, I mean, this poem in a way is kind of revelation in an almost epic and mythic way for me um, that I did not have that, you know, I was the oblivious male, if you like. I did not have that insight or that, that perspective. So um, it's a gift. I also like the way that your mother is present and the handing down of the ritual of metamorphosis. I think that's brilliant. And, uh, and obviously that, that passes on from woman to woman, from generation to generation. This is powerful stuff. Um, thank you for that. Um, and then we go to another poem, uh, which is about something that happens in childhood. Yeah. So uh, the next one that I, that I had um, chosen is called um, Interrupting the Breadmaking. Um, and it's from my most recent book called Manhandled. Um, it's, it's kind of about the childhood lessons that change you um, and that, you know, give you knowledge that you didn't have before and which may actually come with pain and change as well um, and we all have moments that we remember where we learned never to do a certain thing again because of the consequences of doing it um, but also those 
I feel like those um, those moments of kind of advancing wisdom that you make as a child, I feel like they are also ever so slightly, you can think of them as little deaths of part of the child that, that will kind of never come back. There's certain parts of innocence that get kind of chipped away as, as the child gets older and older. And so they're, they're a moment of change and the child is changing from one thing into another thing. Um, and that, you know, in this poem, there's a physical kind of impact of that as well. Anyway, I'll just, I'll, I'll read it and you'll get the idea. Interrupting the bread making. The frost has woken her early. She pads into the freezing kitchen in her hand-me-down quilted dressing gown, sniffing the yeasty air. She is discovering for the first time her father's secret early morning life. Almost younger than words, she can only stroke solemnly the ears of the knitted rabbit cradled in her arm and watch as her father, clapping flour from his grey hands, wrenches open the door of the pot-bellied stove, prods a roaring orange monster mouth with a dark metal wand. There are nuggets inside, blurred with flame. They flare and settle. The mouth spits little pellets of grey onto the hearthstone, like biscuit crumbs, like breadcrumbs. She reaches for them. Too late, the air is full of loud, and from that moment the word no is black and orange and ash, is the sound of skin sizzling, is the texture of a puckered fingertip and don't touch somehow smells like coking coal and yeast and father and curiosity, stubbornness, defiance, sting like bare feet on a winter morning, chafe like coarse wool, dig like a dressing gown cord, pink, frayed, tied too tight, a cord which is not umbilical, but which is nevertheless a species of tether. Skin, skin sizzling. Do you have a scar, Melinda? <laughs> no, actually, I, I've done other things to myself since that I had, um, but it, it was one of my, you know, index fingers, probably my right index finger. And I can still see it when I look there. I can still imagine the that, you know, incredibly unsettling feeling of the skin kind of semi-melting. You know, it wasn't, you know, it was just sore for a few days and had to have a band-aid on it and then it was fine. But my goodness, it was my first lesson in the, you know, listen to what your father says. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, what interests me here is that you use metamorphosis as a lens uh, to in, examine even small events. Now I've always thought of metamorphosis, I suppose, in terms of an epiphany or a seminal life-changing event, but, mm. but the way you use it, Anything that's transformative can be a metamorphosis of sorts. Um, yeah, I suppose um, I think that, you know, we have death and taxes, but I think the other constant in human life is change. And it's, um, we are kind of in a process of becoming almost all the time. I mean, I think that the point where you stop changing is the point at which you kind of start to, head down the, the, the long slope into, into like the final death as, as you might conceive of it. But I think, um, yeah, it's, 
the change is coming. Change is going to come at you just because you're alive. And, and then the question is um, how you react to that change, whether you kind of preemptively change so that you can avoid what's coming or you kind of face it and, and go with it and try and lean into the change. Um, so I like to think about all of those things um, uh, yeah, as, as because we don't live in an age where we can conceive of ourselves as gods or of, of gods kind of having, you know, battles in the sky above us, we can still use those stories to understand um, the process of life um, and use them to kind of make our own lives more comprehensible and give ourselves the illusion sometimes that we've got a bit more control than we do. I've always been, you know, attracted to Walt Whitman's idea of, you know, I contain multitudes and, and, and passing through uh, many iterations of the self. Um, but I, I've never really thought of it in terms of the transformative nature of that, of that we transform, we do move from one self to another self, and that each time we do that, there's some kind of metamorphosis taking place. I think your poems do draw that out. Um, yeah, I mean, in life, you, you pass through a lot of doors and some of them are only one-way doors. You know, <laughs> you, can, you can go through the door and you're never quite the person that you were before. And yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm kind of un unpacking. In yeah, you, can never go, you can never go back. You can never go back. But, right. you know, if you contain multitudes, then, you know, today you can be the happy person and tomorrow you can be the sad person. And, and that's possible and that's not a one-way um, uh, process. But you know, you're the person today, you're the person who, you know, has um, their life and health and tomorrow you're the person who's being diagnosed with a chronic illness and you have to live in a different way for the rest of your life. You know, that's the sort of um, one-way door that I think of as, you know, more like a metamorphosis. You have to learn to do with what you've got now, not what you had yesterday. Now, your next poem, I, I and I'm interested to know how you're going to do that. Let me just remind myself. Oh, I see. Yes. Oh, and it's the one that, that uh, you know, goes quite neatly into what I was just talking about. So this is um, a poem that has a bunch of acronyms um, in its title. And the acronyms go like this. D-K-A-T-1-D-B-G-L-H-B-A-1-C. And they are all acronyms which will be very familiar to anyone listening who has type 1 diabetes in their lives. Yeah. Um, so DKA stands for diabetic ketoacidosis, which is um, the process, or well, not the process, it's kind of the final stage of onset of type 1 diabetes when you get really sick and you don't know why and you end up in hospital and the people in the hospital tell you that you're in diabetic ketoacidosis, which means your pancreas has given up quite some time ago and you've been slowly starving for a long time. And if you don't get insulin within the next two or three days, you're going to die. So um, uh, unfortunately, we, we actually went there with a close family member of mine who is still fine now, but they were 10 years old at the time. And it was, you know, as you can expect, um, quite... Uh, stressful time for all of us and very, very harrowing for him. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what this poem is about. And it kind of plays with that 
um, that sense that we've entered a new world, we've entered a new planet where they speak a different language and they speak in these acronyms and there's all this medical stuff that comes at you all at once that you have to try and assimilate as well as all the emotional stuff of, well, you know, the life we thought of for this human is changed in certain ways now. You know, he can never... Um, he can do lots of things, but, you know, he can't be a, a fighter pilot and he, he uh, there are certain, like, can't be an electrician. Um, actually, no, that's the other one. Sorry, not electricians can be diabetics. Um, he can't be a fighter pilot and he has certain, you know, conditions on his driving licence and, and he has to um, do a number of jobs every day and all night in order to stay alive and have stable blood sugar. Um, he has to be his own pancreas, basically, and we have to help him with that. So, um, yeah, all of that is kind of wrapped up in the poem and hopefully that's enough context. Is there anything else you wanted to ask me about it before I read it, David? Well, no, I, I didn't get the acronym, so I didn't know really what it was referring to. So it's nice to have the explanation and I'll have to show the poem to my wife, who's a kidney specialist, so she can, <laughs> she can tell me all about it. Yeah, she may well have come across a few type 1 diabetics in her work. Um, so, oh, and just just for those watching who are not familiar with diabetes, there, there are two, two main types of diabetes and one of them is supposedly brought on oneself through poor lifestyle choices and tends to come on later in life. That's not strictly true, but, you know, that's kind of true of some of the people who get type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is when your immune system attacks your pancreas and uh, or attacks the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin and you can't make your own insulin and uh, therefore your body can't process the energy from the food um, that it takes in. So uh, yeah, that's type one and that can happen at any time, but it tends to happen to younger people. So anyway, here we go. DKA, T1D, BGL, HbA1c dead of night, that double time breathing, ketoacidosis grew into meaning as a smell, a reek of nail polish and old fruit. The second hospital believed us, pricked your finger for proof. One day I will be able to speak of your near miss, your slide into coma. Do not ask me to do it dry eyed bruising like abuse on your thighs from the groin line, growing a life back from zero, learning the daily dangers of eating, of moving, how to weigh the risk of sleep. Here is your bonus time, the years, blood and puncture, blood and worry and puncture after your first death, the numbers you live by, one day, seven pinpricks, four injections, dozens of questions without answers. Cyborgs are not the future. They are among us, quietly calibrating. Yeah. Um, I should have also mentioned that it's an acrostic. So um, DKA, um, so every, every line begins with a letter of those acronyms. Um, and of course the word one, <laughs> instead of the number one appears a few times. Okay, so, I hadn't picked that up on my reading, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in exploring the first couple of poems that you read were where metamorphosis was a kind of affirmation, it was kind of a, a, a growth. Mm. 
And here you've got metamorphosis as a, as a negative thing, as something that is forced upon you and, and, and you just have to contend with, with it, which I suppose is uh, what happens a lot in life, isn't it? That, that the, the limitations, that the changing in parameters and the way that we have to live our lives for whatever reason um, is a form of metamorphosis that, that's captured in the poem. Yeah, and um, I suppose the poem is my attempt on behalf of my son and also on behalf of myself to kind of forge ahead with this new language and try and make something out of it rather than moaning about it. <laughs> um, I mean, the moaning has to happen in order for the change to be acclimatated, acclimated to, but um, in the end, if you can go on and try and, you know, make art or have some kind of um, control, like illusory control over your new circumstances that can help in adjusting to them. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of how you how you handle it, how you deal with with it, and we all struggle with that. And it's like we've all been struggling with lockdown and everything else. Yes, absolutely. Just that's a metamorphosis, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, well, none of us are going to be the same after twenty twenty. And your next poem is titled "Mothful." I was just intrigued by the title. What, where does that come from? What's that? Um, oh, it's kind of. I'm, I'm a terrible punner and um, so the poem in the poem the, the the person is coping with some bad news by imagining themselves transforming into something else and that involves um, something being in the mouth towards the end of the poem so um, it could be mouthful but but the transformation is into a moth so it becomes mothful right. um, instead um, yeah, I don't know if it works or not. I just kind of, um, I think moths are very interesting and um, I've always liked um, that wonderful poem of Elizabeth Bishop's The Man Moth, um, which talks about a, a man who is also a moth or a moth who's the size of a man. And it, it comes from a, a typographical error that she saw when she's reading a newspaper article about a mammoth. And uh -huh. actually said man moth instead. And so she wrote a poem all about the life of a man moth. And it was, it's, it's an amazingly very dreamlike, very profound, kind of accidentally profound piece. Um, and yeah, so moths are kind of one of my little touchstones for when, when things get weird. <laughs> and so that's how that happened. They happened to come out in this poem. Is mothful, is that a made up word? Is that yeah, yeah, it's a, made, a word I made up. So I just took mouthful and took the yeah, you out yeah. of it and made it into moth. I love made up words. <laughs> well, let's, let's hear the, the made up word poem. Okay. So uh, this is also from Manhandled. Um, and uh, this is actually, you know, the narrator in the poem is receiving bad news about um, their sibling, basically. I mean, it doesn't have to be a sibling. It just has to be somebody close. Um, but the the kind of twist in the, in the writing of the poem is that in real life, I only have one sibling and nothing bad has happened to them yet, but this is me preemptively trying to control the narrative by imagining what it would be like to get this kind of news. Um, so, and also, you know, it's, it's kind of also a poem written for everybody who has had this happen in their family as a kind of empathy exercise. Mothful. You close the door, leaving your news behind like a tiny egg. 
I send my voice after you. It thickens, sweeps soft from my lips. It has become a dark brown thing, a furred wing, flailing. I am freighted with words for you. I carry them between my teeth, jokes, nicknames, rules for pillow fighting. The particulars of the broken window, the fact that stage three is not stage four. How I know about your shoplifting charge from year 10 and still remember the precise location of the matchbox car I hid from you in 1979. The great results they get from keyhole surgery these days. The words clog and swarm and all I am is this wrong kind of chattering. It makes me think how after fire, certain blackened saplings grow their leaves wrong that is all along their arms, not out at their fingers. Like the charred bark can only speak its cause over and over having lost all other habit. But I can't tell you this or anything like this. Only cough you the moth dust from under my tongue. Is there, a, is there a sense here that we are all grappling with metamorphosis all the time without necessarily being conscious of it? That we're, that we're, you know, we're living in a world where we're awash with speech and words and everything is coming at us, but things are not being articulated and we are struggling to make sense of what's going on with the people around us and in their lives and, and how things might be changing and that we don't fully understand. Uh, is that part of what's going on in this poem? Yes, I, I think, I think so. Um, I just, um, yeah, I agree actually that's, that's, you just described a kind of a movie I want to see. <laughs> what I want to, what I want to see is a movie where that constant changing and that constant struggle to make sense is um, made manifest. In fact, I'm, probably many great films already do that, but um, in this sense yeah the the kind of um the shock that somebody who you'd shared pillow fights with and you'd shared you know matchbox cars in 1979 could suddenly be possibly about to leave really in a great big hurry um the shock of feeling the mortality of your sibling and the, the feeling the mortality of yourself um you know in the poem the narrator of the poem experiences that as a kind of you know being transformed well her voice really transforming into something that she can't speak with so she's struggling to articulate mm. um all of those feelings and and then that, that, there's that other image of the kind of the burnt tree with the leaves growing all along the branches rather than you know out at the end where you would expect them to grow um as another image of this is a permanent change and and you know i'm going to keep growing but i'm going to have to do it differently because I've been shocked out of my normal way of being. So, um, yeah, sometimes we do experience moments like that where everything shifts and um, we just have to kind of keep going um, with, as I said, with what we have now, not what, what we had yesterday. But we don't always understand the shift, do we? No, no. I mean, we experience it as trauma and confusion um, and it's only, you know, many, many uh, in my own life as a poet, it's only generally several years after trauma and confusion that I have any words at all to make sense of it. But, you know, one of my 
bits of a vocation as a poet is to find those words and make sense of that experience and maybe they will be in front of somebody who's closer to it and be of some help to them in articulating what they're going through. Mm. Yeah. Um, the next poem is The Undiscovered Country. Rightio. Big one here. <laughs> Strapping. Yeah. So, uh, did you have any questions you wanted to ask about it before? No, I... read, read on. We can have a chat. Okay, we can have a chat afterwards. Um, this is from my kind of next to last book called Goodbye Cruel, um, which is all about the subject of suicide. And there are various, you know, characters or narrators in the book who, who um, have various kind of interactions with the phenomenon of suicide. This is the one poem in the book where I imagine a person who has taken their own life and um, what it might be like if, for example, Dante's conception of hell were true and you woke up in the seventh circle of hell from um, Canto 13 and uh, you were actually transformed into a, a thorn tree, which is what, um, in the Inferno Dante describes as that's what happens to people who take their own lives because suicide is considered to be, you know, one of the, the deadly sins. So um, what else do I let, need to let you know? It starts with an epigraph from the, the bit of Dante that describes the forest of suicides where the poison thorn trees grow. Um, and it kind of transplants that landscape slightly so that it is possibly a kind of a bunch of casuarinas growing on some grey sand next to a coastal river. Um, and I think that's about it. Oh, and a, a content warning, obviously, it has suicide and also self-harm in it. The Undiscovered Country. When an exasperated soul tears itself from its own body, Minos condemns it to the seventh abyss. It falls into the forest, lands nowhere special, what it, wherever fortune casts it, and there it germinates like a dropped grain of spelt. The leaves here are not green, but some colour drained of light. The branches not lithe, but gnarled, knotted to each other, bearing no fruit but poison thorns. So that's from Dante, Canto 13 of the Inferno. And here's the poem. Waking here, it seems I have taken root in a stand of coastal trees of a kind I have seen sometimes by tidal rivers where the air smells bad. Each of us has tiny needles for leaves. Our bark is almost black. The wind scrapes us against each other and we moan. Our ground is grey sand pitted with an impossible number of ant holes. We block so much light, nothing else grows but ivy, escaped from some place it would be more welcome. Mosquitoes rise from the river in the evening to sing in our ears like tinnitus, our ears which we have lost. Somehow it has been arranged that we can still hear that which is unpleasant. And the harpies are real, yes, but they remind me of chuffs, red-eyed, wheezing pack birds. They perch, tear at our leaves, feed bits of us, 
to their chicks. We feel their claws and beaks as if we still had skin. I never once loved my body. At first I hardly noticed it. Then later, when it bled every month, when my breasts swelled, intruded themselves, complicated my every move, it felt more like a punishment, a humiliating costume into which I had been sewn. Too big, too floppy, too pale, too slow. Sometimes I tried to take control, to starve it, cut it, knock it out with drink. Later, I simply bore it as a burden, as one does. I can barely believe I had the gall to get out, to rip the seams and shed it to the floor. I will be a long time growing in this grey sand, a long time missing every fleshy inch, every organ, regretting my frenzied exit. No coming back from that. On the last day, we will be sent to find our bodies again. We are to drag them back here through the ants and the ivy to hoist them on these black branches. Others are permitted to wear theirs once more, coats fetched from a cloakroom, but we have forfeited that right. Mine will be dangling just there, turning slowly in the bad air from the river. Every so often I will meet her eye with my eyes, which I have lost. Somehow it has been arranged that I will always see that which is unpleasant. Yeah, it's a poem that has uh, got a lot of striking imagery in it, and and um, but is very visceral as well. What what's what was the what prompted you to write this? Where did this come from? Um, well, I suppose the you know the whole series of poems that it forms a part of is a meditation on suicide. Um, because a couple of people in my close circle had at that time been having thoughts of ending things. And I found that as an observer and a relative in some cases, quite difficult to bear because if somebody really wants to leave, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And it's kind of in one way, it's, it's their right to go um, and just accepting that is quite difficult. Um, uh, but as part of trying to process that, you know, I wrote a whole series of poems meditating on that and looking at it from a lot of different angles. And I thought, well, we need to get inside the head of a person who's been through that final door and um, see what it might be like on the other side if, if things didn't turn out the way they hoped. Um, and so that, was um, obviously the, the body that I'm most familiar with is mine. So I'm imagining what it would be like to have ended this body and then be turned into a poison thorn tree. Um, but, you know, I'm also thinking about that regret that you don't, you, you don't know if, if someone who takes their own life gets a chance to feel, um, but that would be, uh, an important part if if you did actually go to hell that regret would be part of the torment that you would suffer um so i'm kind of thinking about those kinds of things and um you know uh, that, that that part of the poem where the body gets dragged back and hung on the tree in front of them that that's not me unfortunately that's dante that's what he said 
was going to happen for suicides. Everybody else in hell at, on the last judgment day gets their bodies back temporarily in order to go and get judged. But, um, but the suicides have to carry theirs because they didn't respect them enough when they had them. Mm. It's part of their punishment. So, um, so part of this is just me grappling with how creepy all of that stuff is, all of that finely imagined psychological torture that goes along with the physical torture of the conception of hell. Um, and I'm not myself religious. I am the child of a priest, an Anglican priest, and so I've grown up in um, kind of really breathing the Bible in, I suppose. Um, but not necessarily the Catholic conception of hell, which is where, um, you know, the inferno comes from. But, you know, so there's a lot going on in that poem. I'm not entirely sure it makes much sense to anyone else, but I'm glad that you asked me to read it. Yeah, <laughs> no, well, I, I, was, I was very taken by it, but I, it, was, it was a poem I felt like I would have to read and reread and reread to sort of come to some, some insight about it. Um, but I'm, I'm it's very striking lines like to rip the seams and shed it to the floor. You know, I've never imagined even suicide as, as something quite like that, but of course it is, um, metaphorically at least. Yeah, it? metaphorically. It's, and if, if it's, if you feel, un, you know, if you don't feel at home in your body, um, it can feel like, you know, some kind of crazy costume that you just want to get rid of. But in order to do that, you actually have to, end your life um yeah. and that's you know the, the the biggest of all the one-way doors that we've been talking about um, yeah. today i mean there's lots of ways of ending your life without physically ending your life and you can transform into something completely different and people do that they there's that, that endless quest for identity and changes of identity along the way some people are unrecognizable from who they once were mm. but this is this is the the final way as you say yeah the final way well, let's move on. Um, actually, before we do move on, um, this poem taps into um, the myth mythology, I guess, that sort of is Dante's world. Um, and your next poem, uh, Orion as a Woman Unhelped by a White Ribbon, also gets into a mythological dimension. And perhaps after you've read that, we can, we can talk a little bit about the role of myth in your work. Um, Okay, yep, we will do that. Um, so I'm just thinking of what will help to know about this poem before I read it. Um, so it, there are some star names in the poem because it's um, kind of there, there is one stanza for each star in the constellation of Orion. Um, it's upside down. If you're a Northern Hemisphere listener, it's upside down in the Southern Hemisphere. So Betelgeuse is the bottom right, not the top left. And um, it's uh, a content warning for this as well. This is uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And um, it's a, based on a true story. It's based on a newspaper article from the UK, which I then transposed as if it had happened in this hemisphere. Um, and I was thinking at the time I wrote this poem, I was involved in a project that was to do with making poems about the night sky anyway, but I was particularly interested in 
who gets to be in the night sky and the stories that kind of go with the constellations and how that's an interesting map of whichever civilization made those stories up. And, um, and one, one last thing, I suppose, this, this kind of taps into one function of metamorphosis in myth generally, which is to, um, if somebody's been placed in a, an intolerable situation, um, then they can be transformed into something else and placed somewhere safe. So um, that's kind of the resolution of the poem, I suppose. Um, and it comes with a bit of a warning at the end, but we'll talk about that later. So this is Orion as a woman, unhelped by White Ribbon. White Ribbon is a, a men's organisation where men avow um, or kind of commit to not committing domestic violence and to stopping other men um, doing the same. And Orion as a woman unhelped by White Ribbon um, means this particular woman wasn't helped by that. Regal. Not everyone in the sky is there because they won. Bitch left him. Bad idea, bitch. Safe. He tracked her to the shopping centre, watched the sliding doors part their glass to admit her and her trolley. Hatsia scrambled under her car, waited, heard her return, heard her heft the bags into the boot, waited, heard her opening the driver's side, moved, rolled, rose, took aim before she could close the door, saw her wide eyes, saw her turn too late, the bullet shattering her left thigh, watched her double over, gone pale, gone Mintaka, blue-white with the thought, her child in her belly there jutting above the seatbelt, heard her, Al-Nilam, scream at him, keep screaming, stop. They arrested him, like he said she had it coming, Al-Nitak. He was out in five. She's in the sky now. Easiest to see in summer. Blue-white all over. Left leg still blood-red. Bellatrix. And there above the seatbelt her baby crying out inside her. Its tears bead and glitter. Three of them drop down. Mesa. Every October she rains. Little traumas falling into the spring night falling as meteors. We ignore them. Beetlejuice. In a year now, her wound star will go nova, already eighth brightest in the sky when it is reborn. Not even the sun will blot it. We'll see it wherever we go, all day, all night, long. So, um, Mythology. Yeah. Um, does, does mythology find its way into your work? Would you actively look for mythology um, as a as a tool for your writing? Um, probably, it's more accidental than deliberate, or at least when I'm conceiving of a poem, uh, you know, a myth that's relevant might suggest itself, but I don't often go looking for a poem to talk back to a particular myth. Mm. Um, I think maybe I've done one of those when I was commissioned to do one. 
um, about narcissists, but that's about the only one I can think of. Um, yeah, so the Orion just presented itself because, uh, you know, Orion, I suppose I was thinking about this poem during summertime and Orion is just right there all summer. It's like so easy to see and for a almost star illiterate person like myself, um, it's one of the constellations that's most easily recognisable um, and the red star that's at the bottom of it um, is actually, you know, that's that part of the poem is accurate. It's it's going to one day, possibly even while we're all still alive, um, it's going to go supernova. It's very, very, very close to blowing up and it's going therefore to be extremely bright. Um, so bright that we'll be able to see it in the daytime as well as in the nighttime. And so the idea of how Orion as a constellation actually is, how the story of Orion, you know, Orion is normally a hunter. Mm. Um, and I thought, what if we didn't put the hunter in the sky and, and make the hunter the kind of um, thing that gets stories told about it? What if we put the hunted in the sky? So um, the hunted woman ended up being uh, what I conceived of as part, as, you know, going into the sky. And so there's that trope that, that you get in a lot of transformation stories where in the end she she might have been killed by her jealous lover but she has another life she's been placed in a safe place in the sky and she's also been given a revenge or warning function because one day that wound will speak for her that 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 red star will um, become so bright no one can ignore it anymore and that kind of circles back to the idea of mm. people not not listening to uh, women who are in a situation like that until it's too late. Mm. Um, so all of that kind of got um, jumbled up together in the poem and, and came out um, like that. And I, I mean, I like the idea. I think myths are, um, you know, they're an incredible part of our legacy. No matter what culture we come from, there are stories that help us to understand our world that have been told by people who um, kind of came before us and they're um, incredibly powerful things as they are and they're also part of our legacy as storytellers to keep thinking about them and possibly reapplying them to situations that we find ourselves in that are new and so that's you know kind of what's going on in that poem too with the, yeah. with the myth and the the I mean I, I, I was struck also by the the language used by the the hunter, which is you know the disrespect in the language, and the she had it coming to her and bad bad choice bitch and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, it has a ring of authenticity <laughs> about yeah. it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it must not fine. be easy to it must not be easy to go to these places. And I mean, it, it, do I find soft and fuzzy poems in your work? <laughs> there's a nice one at the end if we get there about like <laughs> sun shining on a rock um i do i do write um nice poems but i suppose a lot of a lot of the ones that people remember of mine are the more i suppose powerful ones where where things get quite dark um i can remember being um recently i took my teenage sons 
um, through necessity, I dragged them along to a, a writer's festival where I had to give a reading. And I think it was the first time in many years that my eldest son in particular has heard me read my poems. And he said afterwards, oh, your poems are so dark. <laughs> oh, it's awful. So um, I'm not this. I suppose I, I like to put the darkness in my poems so that I can go about my life. Um, you know, it's a good place for it. Um, as a, an artist, I think that's, it's a helpful way to proceed rather than hanging on to the darkness. If you can kind of channel it and put it into the work that you're making, then, uh, it's, well, it's more contained. It's, it's more controlled and it's more understandable. Once you've written about something, you can walk all around it and look at it and it's not as overwhelming as when it's, you know, a feeling or, uh, even just, you know, in that sense, that that's not something that poem that has ever happened to me or anyone I know. It was just me reading a newspaper article and feeling terrible kind of pity and fear for the, the woman involved. Um, so it, it really, it was just partly me processing those emotions and, and trying to um, turn them into some kind of memorial to everyone that's happened to. And at the same time, get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Um, so the next poem is uh, different again, Fugal State. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just going to switch over to where I've got my poems up so that I can read it for us. Um, so oh, there we are. Um, so this one is also from the most recent book, Manhandled, um, and there's a whole... Um, bunch of poems that think about uh, the fugue as a kind of structure. So in music, a fugue is something where you have a theme introduced and then it comes back repeated but slightly changed and then it comes back repeated but slightly changed. So it's kind of a thread that, that weaves through a piece of music. And there's a whole series of poems that are constructed like that in, in the book. And I just called them fugal states. Um, but this one also looks at the other meaning of fugal state, which is, you know, a kind of memory loss slash amnesia episode. And, you know, these have been documented in people um, lasting for months and even years where they forget who they are and they kind of fall into a different life and develop different friendships and get a different job and different place to live. And then one day they wake up and they remember who they used to be. And they, um, that creates all sorts of problems, um, for people who experience these fugal states, um, as it were. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking about that's a very extreme example, but, um, you know, we all can, forget things from time to time. And sometimes there are things that we want to forget. And so I was kind of playing with that dynamic um, in the poem. And so this is memory loss as metamorphosis, mm. um, if you like. So here we go. Oh, and it has a, an epigraph from the French philosopher Maurice Blanchot, who uh, had a book called The Writing of the Disaster, which was put into my hands by uh, another poet, Matt Hetherington, who I talked to a lot while I, while I was writing this book, and he was very helpful 
Um, so this is kind of for him, I suppose. Fugal state. Always returning upon the paths of time. We are neither ahead nor behind. Late is early, near is far. Maurice Blanchot, The Writing of the Disaster. Here's the poem. You are always beginning again. It is only a matter of degree. You walk into a room, forgetting the book you came looking for, walk out with a dirty glass. You lay down another ring without realizing, like a tree. It doesn't hurt a bit. You are always beginning again. You walk into the forest, forgetting. There is a storm, there is a morning. You walk out, trailing possibilities from your hands. They drip like snapped branches. There was a storm, there was a morning. There was a name once, a specific and grievous history, a mobile number, a particular sequence of houses, an immunity to certain indignities. There was more and more forgetting. Entering a room full of bonsai, you breathe moss and cypress and the clean, bald smell of long, dry river stones. The air hums with age, with what the trees have known and have forgotten and will know again. They are always beginning. You breathe, you dream, you have been reborn as a small ceramic deer. You sit under the momiji, the scarlet baby's hands of the Japanese maple in a forest small enough to fit on a dinner plate and begin again. Well, I like this because it actually, it, it took me somewhere I didn't expect it to take me. I always like it when a poem does that. So when I'm thinking of memory loss, uh, my great fear, my great fear of memory loss is uh, the loss that, that you become absent from yourself. Mm. Um, that there is no reprieve, if you like, from that loss. But what you, what you find in that loss is a doorway into a new beginning. So there's something almost hopeful in this poem that, mm. that even though there is the loss, there is something else that replaces the loss that you can find beauty in and however momentary, however transitory and you can, and you can move on. Mm. Um, that I didn't expect that <laughs> uh, really even from you know the title of the poem and and uh, I thought oh this is this is going to be bleak but it's not you find something else yeah and I think I mean I don't know because I'm um, only just now starting to watch certain older members of my family go through the small preludes to larger memory loss but um, my hope for it is that when you're experiencing it you are able and you do see this in some older people they kind of they go through a period of confusion and fear but then they come out the other side into somewhere that seems to be quite pleasant um so that's that's me partly thinking about about that um and uh, the image of the bonsai and the kind of transforming into something very small and living in a much smaller way um, was kind of my way of conceiving of that. You, you get a new life. It's not the same size as the life that you did have before, but you get a new life and it's very pleasant. You are a small ceramic deer and you're under these beautiful um, maple leaves and you're beginning again. So um, 
yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a bit of a mystery even to me that poem. It could be about all sorts of other things, and other people could find things in it that I um, didn't necessarily conceive of. But um, yeah, the the images of the the bonsai were really kind of um, yeah my way through with that poem. Yeah, I didn't know how to end it, and that's when the bonsai arrived. Yeah, no, I like the bonsai. I mean, it does remind me of the the studies that indicate that even people who have suffered enormous memory loss can respond to music, um, and uh, that music has a way of entering into the the. Uh, it, it's so it's so deeply embedded the, the music within us that it it can evoke a response even from people who are very very seriously suffering from memory loss. Um, so that they're we don't know what they are, but that there are little worlds in there that continue. Yes. Um, and that there may be um, tranquility in those worlds and there may be joy in those worlds too. We just don't necessarily know what they are. Yeah. Um, so that's the theme I'm going to go on. That's the kind of the project I'm working on now. Hmm. It's, uh, thinking more, more seriously about memory loss. So, yeah, I have to work through all of that stuff. Um, in the next book, which so you you know four or five years from now, if I'm still around, you'll find out what it what it became. Okay. Uh, your next poem is called "Give." Okay, so this is um, uh, un oh, it's not unpublished. It's been published on the kind of poetry on the move. Uh, different corners section of their website um, uh, but yes otherwise unpublished is not in a book anywhere and it's me thinking about 2020 but um, I was actually writing it in autumn so uh, this was written before the second Melbourne lockdown and everything that came with that this is just processing the bushfires and um, the smoke emergency that went on for months in Canberra and um, the uh, the first lockdown for the pandemic. And again, it's about, uh, I suppose, the change in our environment and how we all have to cope with that and that will force us to change as well and it focuses in on a particular tree as a way of understanding that. It's called Give and it uh, has a little kind of subtitle, Pistachia chinensis. Autumn Southern Hemisphere 2020, and that's the name of this tree. Something always has to give. It happened late summer in those weeks of smoke, fires in three directions, that acrid air, that all-day dirty grey bug, the old tree in the neighbour's yard, the broad pistachio, dropped a limb, drought-struck, losing perhaps a fifth of its crown down its side, seesawing over our fence, and lay a wrecked ribcage for days. Then came the chainsaws, the bark paint, the former branches shuddering into the mulcher, never to return. A new gap in the canopy opens to high mid-continent sky, now blue again, now endless, hungry. Ever since the pistachio has been watching things more intently. It has seen the people staying put in the houses, the children's noses always at the windows. It has seen visitors coming 
with covered faces, standing far apart. Even now, after months of clear air, deep rains, gentler sun, it struggles, bare twigs at the end of its branches, like unshaven stubble. Something has shifted, for good, as they say. The suffering is sudden, complicated, permanent. But the last of the leaves have turned magnificently, russet, gold, cherry red, chestnut. Today it showers them into the bright air, joyful, spinning, ticker tape, a gift for no one in particular, preparing to meet winter, its wife, tumbling confetti by the fistful. Yeah, so um, in the notes that you sent me with uh, your poem, you said this is about environmental change, metamorphosis of the world and the wounded life within it. Um, well, environmental change and metamorphosis of the world is, is a constant, isn't it? It's always going on. And um, I, I guess you could say it's accelerated now. Uh, many, many poets are trying to grapple with this and, and, and what it means for us. Are you here, and you, you find at the end, even in this change, the beauty of what, what can be provided by the change, it can still be so beautiful. But are you simply trying to chronicle something here that's happening or are you trying to do more with this poem than just chronicle an event? Um, I, I was trying to, I suppose, honour the way that nature has of adapting. Um, so I suppose that's still, it's still chronicling what's happening. As you can see um, from the poem, it's, very small in scope it's just the tree that I can see in fact I, it's, I'm sitting in the spot where I wrote, wrote the poem and I can see that pistachio what's left of it out the window um, as we speak so it's um, yeah kind of taking a small focus because we are all forced to take a small focus when we're locked inside our houses all day and it's um, trying to understand very big things that are out of our control and making peace with the fact that um, I mean I'm not I'm not trying to make it I'm not trying to make the poem tell people to give up on uh, trying to uh, halt climate change or you know go for renewable energy or anything like that I'm just trying to make peace with the fact that whatever happens there's a fair amount of change that's baked in already and uh, the way that we live is going to have to alter but that's going on around us all the time. If we look, you know, trees drop limbs all the time and they learn to live on. Um, species habitats get smaller and smaller, but some of them cling on. Um, and we just have to look at that and think that there is some hope there for some kind of continuance, even if it's not in the form that we would predict. Um, yeah, but I don't know uh, if that poem has succeeded in, in doing anything other than chronicling this moment, but I also think it's worthwhile chronicling this moment. Yeah, poetry is witness. I mean, um, the fundamental part of poetry, isn't it, is to chronicle and record and... Yeah, bear witness. Yeah, and yeah. share, make it available to other people. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay, we have one final poem. Um, afternoon at La Pietra, which is a little bit different because it's it's not about 
someone or something. It's really about an inanimate object, but it's beautiful nonetheless. I'd love you to finish up with that one. Okay. So this, I suppose, it, it's in this themed collection because it's metamorphosis in the eye of the beholder. So something isn't actually necessarily changing in any fundamental way. It's just changed by um, the consciousness that looks at it. And I suppose the consciousness is itself changed by what, witnessing this change. Mm. So afternoon at La Pietra. Imagine uh, a hillside um, above Florence mm. in Northern Italy. Someone has silk stockinged the sun. Every yellow villa wall is a spread net of marigold. For afternoons like this, marble is hewn and placed as an offering. A creamy glow line flares along a pale brow, a marvel of cheekbone, a spread palm cups its blessing of radiance. For afternoons like this, words like burnish and mellow are required, are called into being. Words like worship, do not say them yet. Stand a moment in the late gold day. Look upon the rock, the brick, the carved, the uncarved, taking their bright slant benediction. See and stay silent. See stone itself anointed and caused to speak blindingly eloquent with light. And that poem's almost a prayer, isn't it? You know, in a way. Um, and, and what I love about it is that it, it reminds me we all need to do, poets, of course, but everyone, is to pay attention, to, to, to look, to see what's there to be seen. We can, we can so easily pass by that and, and miss it. Mm. We just stop for a moment and look and see it. And that what is revealed to us is something that is, is worth seeing because it's beautiful. It's, so the eye of the beholder indeed. Um, thank you so much, Melinda. That was wonderful. Really enjoyed that. I, I think I'm going to go around thinking of life in terms of metamorphosis from now on. <laughs> um, totally changed. Um, when this video is posted, which will be in a few days, uh, it will include information on how to obtain copies of Melinda's books. Highly recommended. So look out for that. Uh, Poets Corner. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that was a couple. These are the books uh, that have been read, read from. Hang on. There we are. Thank you. Those two as well. Um, Poets it's Corner. backwards though, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, no, it comes out right. Poets Corner will return towards the end of November with Alex Scovram. I'm looking forward to that on the theme of histories, public and personal. Thank you very much. <laughs>